this morning in the instruction period, I described a little bit about working with mind states in general. This evening I'd like to explore some particular mind states that tend to catch us up. The Buddha was very kind to us in all of these lists that he made. And one of the lists that he offered to us was a particular set of mind states, mental energies that tend to hinder our ability to be in the present moment, hinder our concentration. This list is called the hindrances. And the five hindrances that the Buddha identified as being states that tend to get in our way, tend to be, make it difficult for us to meditate, to uh, be mindful, to settle into concentration, are sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety, and doubt. The very name hindrances I think because of of the understanding that these states tend to get in the way of our being in the present moment, we may tend to think that if they are present, that we cannot be present uh, present in the present moment, that they inherently hinder our ability to connect with experience in the present moment. But what they do mostly is tend to take us away. There's a lot of habitual energies around these hindrances that tend to catch us, tend to um, have us get caught in their beliefs and their delusions, and tend to obscure our ability to be present, but do not inherently obscure our ability to be mindful of them. In fact, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the instructions that we have of record that um, offer what the Buddha had to say about mindfulness and practicing mindfulness meditation, he included this list as good objects for meditation. In the fourth foundation of mindfulness, he included a whole section on how to practice with the hindrances. And so one of the keys, I think, around the hindrances is recognizing that they are hindrances. They get in our way only when we are not mindful of them. When we can bring mindfulness to them, they actually become the path. They become the the soil, the compost, in which our mindfulness can strengthen. These states, the hindrances, they tend to be experienced as unpleasant, as suffering, as suffering. In the first noble truth, the Buddha said, what do we need to do with suffering? Suffering happens, and we need to understand it. That was his instruction to us around suffering. Understand suffering. 
And so with these hindrances, if we apply that instruction, we need to understand these hindrances. Not intellectually, this understanding in the First Noble Truth that the Buddha was talking about is not an intellectual understanding, but an understanding, an experiential understanding, a knowing, a meeting, a being with, an understanding that arises through the connection with the experience, not through thinking about it. And so we become explorers, we become naturalists, we investigate, we get to know our states of mind. And in particular, these hindrances when they arise. The way a naturalist works, I like, I like the analogy of a naturalist in terms of investigation in our practice. The way a naturalist works, a naturalist will go out into nature and just observe, take their time observing what happens over time. They walk through the woods, identify perhaps different plants or different animals to observe and over time they continue to go back over and over again to look at them. The understanding arises with a naturalist, the understanding arises as the observation, as the, as the observation um, gains some momentum or as the, the naturalist over time begins to see, oh, this is what happens to this plant as it grows. This is, what hap- this is what this animal does at this time of year, and this is what they do at this time of year. These are the calls they make when they're mating. These are the calls when they make when they've found food. These are the calls that they make when they're alarmed. So it's over time, just through being in the environment, they learn. The knowledge grows. And very similarly, as we, with patience, with kindness, with persistence, a gentle Uh, patience and persistence, we meet these states and we get to know how do they come about? What are the conditions that lead to them? What What are they like when they're here? What are the conditions that lead to their support their falling away? And so as a naturalist, we Observe, not with the agenda to get rid of the hindrances, but with the interest to understand. One of the kind of hmm, principles or hmm, interesting things about the way the practice works is that things shift and change as we observe them. They shift and change not because we want them to, not because we uh, are observing them in a particular way in order to make something happen to them, but they shift and change because as we hang out with our experiences, much as with the naturalist, wisdom, understanding begins to grow. As we notice what happens as sense desire arises over and over and over again, wisdom begins to grow. We begin to understand something about the nature of sense desire. 
or we begin to understand something about the nature of fear, anxiety, restlessness, doubt, as we begin to understand that nature, wisdom strengthens, and it is wisdom that creates the transformation. Wisdom transforms our mind. Understanding transforms our minds. And so in exploring these hindrances with you, I'd like to talk about each one. I'd like to encourage this attitude of interest and investigation and curiosity. These hindrances will arise. Probably every single one of them in every single one of you. So they're going to be with us and they're going to be with us for a while. So might be useful to rather than having an adversarial relationship with them, get curious about them. For a while in my practice, I definitely had the sense that um, the hindrances were obstructions, they were in the way, they were things to be gotten rid of in order to get down to the real practice. And that the real practice didn't begin while I was experiencing anger or sense desire or sleepiness. It was not possible for practice to begin until those went away. That was my belief. And through many three-month courses and many times of basically having the hindrances so in my face. And one retreat was what I call my self-hatred retreat. That, you know, it was like, okay, it was kind of like surrender. Surrender mind. Okay, I guess this, I guess self-hatred is what I have to pay attention to. And as I surrendered to it, getting interested in it, that's when I began to see that deep, transforming understanding can arise right in the midst of observing these hindrances. Watching self-hatred, deep understanding about the ephemeral, empty nature of it as a mind state. So the, the hindrances are not in the way of practice. They are our practice. They don't tend to feel good. And so we don't like them. But that's just, since that's just ill will, another hindrance. These hindrances do at times tend to come together in what we sometimes call a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> you have a, Uh, a feeling of sleepiness and then you hate that feeling of sleepiness and then doubt arises that, oh, I'm sleepy. There you've got three of them all at once. So they do tend to, they they can tend to come together, but they, they are workable. They are our path. And transformation can happen right in the midst of them. And so I'd really like to encourage a sense of curiosity Interest, interest to understand them. With that perspective, wisdom will grow.
And so sense desire. This one's pretty basic. Things are, certain things are pleasant. We tend to like them, to want them. We uh, want to have more of them. This movement of being in the presence of pleasure and not really clearly understanding whatever it is, this, this pleasant phenomenon, as being a ephemeral, impermanent experience. Our delusion, our, our mind thinks that, that is what's going to make me happy. It's actually quite amazing when we, um, when we start to really see the way sense-desire works. Sense-desire, while it's operating and while we believe it, we really do think that that extra cookie is going to make us happy. Watch it for yourself. You know, for that moment, in the throes of being caught and enthralled by that sense desire, for that period of time, we have absolute conviction that that cookie is going to do it for us. So we're not aware of just how impermanent, unreliable that bit of pleasure is. caught in the state of sense desire, sense desire believes, sense desire believes that having that pleasant thing is what's going to make me happy. And sense desire also believes if I don't get that thing, I will be unhappy. So sense desire tends to keep us from being present because we are caught in this story, caught in this fantasy. Sometimes it's, a, it's an idea in our mind. We construct something. It may, it may be something actually there in the, in the dining room or it may be an idea in our minds, like some, something from the world enters into our mind and we start planning the perfect job. That's what I'm going to do when I leave. And it becomes this kind of enduring fantasy. So we can get hooked into um, sense desires of our own construction as well. So in that... In that time, we are um, caught in the fantasy, caught in the belief that that thing, having that thing, is what will make us happy. And we are not noticing that in the very moment of having that sense desire and being pulled out of the present moment, that there's an inherent sense of offness, of dissatisfaction, that's happening. And so essentially we are, with sense desire, we are willing to give up happiness here and now. We are willing to give up the sense of ease and peace here and now for the possibility of a fleeting moment of happiness, maybe, in the future. Sense desire has this powerful, delusive force to it, making us believe that getting that thing will make us happy. 
What sense desire will not tell us is that if the sense desire goes away, there won't be a problem. So this is the exploration with mindfulness. When sense desire arises and you notice it, you become aware of it, see if you can take your attention out of the thing that you are kind of reaching for, whatever it is that you want, and turn towards the experience of sense desire itself. That, that experience of sense desire itself doesn't feel very good. It feels off. It feels like something's wrong. We get the, the visceral sense of why we follow through on it, in, in effect, because it doesn't feel good. And when we get that thing that we want, that, that feeling of um, dissatisfaction goes away for a moment. And that's one of the hooks that sense desire has for us. When we get what we want, we get a double hit of pleasure. We get the pleasure of the thing that we want and we get the pleasure of the sense desire going away. I'd like to propose to you that the bigger part of the pleasure the, big, the biggest hook, actually, for us is the sense desire going away. That relief that we get when sense desire disappears. It's huge. And when we begin to turn towards the experience of sense desire, look at it, feel it, get to know it, and we watch it for long enough that we actually begin to see it, maybe we even begin to see it dissipate or even see it vanish then we will know for ourselves that sense desire has been like pulling the the wool over our eyes, making us believe that the only way we can be happy is to get what we want. In one three-month course, I was doing the kind of restricted or, you know, sense... um, restraint practice of not looking at people, keeping my eyes, my gaze down. And I found that I really wanted to look at people. For many weeks, I was like I was walking around with blinders on. I'm not going to look. I am not going to look. They told me not to look. I'm not going to look. So it was kind of like I was doing it because I was told to. At that time, there was more of an encouragement towards, towards the um, sense restraint. And so I was kind of just doing it, forcing myself to do it. And as I felt all that sense desire, it's like, no, 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 I'm not going to follow, no, no. And so it was a lot of, of repression of the feeling of wanting. After several weeks of this, finally, I kind of got it. It's like, ah, this is sense desire. This is desire. Maybe I should look at it. Maybe I should watch it, as opposed to just trying to force myself to stay unmoving. And so I began to do that. I began to watch the desire. I didn't follow through on it. I, I kept my gaze down. But rather than it having, having it be a forceful thing, I got interested in the desire. And I got... It was actually fascinating to begin to see 
how did it appear? When did it appear? I would be walking, minding my own business. Nobody would be around. Since desire was very far away, the desire to look at people, when people weren't around, the desire to look at people didn't exist. That was pretty clear. And then as I was walking, somebody would pop into my peripheral vision and boom, sense desire would arise in that instant, seeing it coming into being. And then as I felt it, I felt into the feeling of, I felt like a, a pull, like a magnetic pull to look at that person. Just like this, mm. it took some energy to not look up, but while I was feeling it, I was interested in the experience of that pull. And then it got even stronger. It strengthened as the person like would walk a little bit up in front of me and all it would have taken was a little flick of the eyes to look up and look at them. Oh, it got so strong. <laughs> so there, just looking, you know, noticing, feeling the feeling. And then I was doing the walking meditation out here. A person would like cross in front of me. Oh, very strong when they were right there. And then they'd go up the steps and into the door. It disappeared. It vanished in an instant. I felt like I'd been released from a vice grip. The recognition of just how powerful that experience of wanting had been around something as simple as looking at somebody, how painful it had been to be caught in that vice grip, around the simplicity of wanting to look at somebody. The mind reels at how much dukkha there is for the many kinds of wanting that we have that are more potent for us than looking at somebody. So seeing this, being curious about watching this moment, the moment of both seeing it arise, seeing it strengthen, feeling it, then seeing it disappear That was a powerful moment, not only for the understanding of how much suffering it was, but for the understanding of the happiness that came from the release of the wanting. In that moment, the delusion that wanting, the delusion of wanting, the story it was telling me that you'll be happy if you look at it, was seen for just a complete hoax. So watching sense desire, getting familiar with it. As we explore turning towards sense desire, there's kind of a middle way that we practice around both sense desire and ill will that we neither repress it nor indulge it. And it can be kind of challenging to walk that middle line. When we open to sense desire without repressing it, sometimes it can kind of slip into, oh, I'm just going to feel this desire. And, And then we kind of end up indulging it. We might end up in a fantasy and just indulging that fantasy. And so it takes some honest discernment for us to recognize when is it that we are kind of slipping into indulging rather than really paying attention to the desire itself.
in general, I would say that if you're noticing desire and there's a lot of pleasant experience, you may be indulging it and not really connecting to the the feeling of the desire itself because the desire itself does have a little bit, it has got an off feeling to it. And so we have to learn to be honest with ourselves about if we are indulging or if we find a particular kind of sense desire has so much power on us, over us, there may be some strategies that are, that are helpful. Um, let yourself not be in the presence of that thing that you desire, if possible. Uh, you know, just keep yourself away from it. Or if, you know, you may be able to turn your attention elsewhere. Just put your attention on, um, on something else. Especially if it's kind of a, a sense desire of your own construction in your own mind. If it's a fantasy kind of sense desire. Let yourself set it aside and put your attention on some, something neutral in your experience. Perhaps the breath, perhaps sound. Just keep saying no to that to that pattern if you find that trying to pay attention to it just loops you into it over and over again. <coughs> then ill will. Ill will is kind of the flip side of sense desire and so a lot of what I've said about sense desire applies to ill will. Ill will tends to arise Uh, when we are in the presence of something unpleasant. We don't like it. We want to get rid of it. We want to fix it, change it, control it. There's a lot of different flavors of states of mind that can kind of come into this category of ill will, including anger, frustration, hatred, irritation, annoyance, rage, dislike. So it's it's a range of experience around the ill will. It can be extremely strong or quite subtle. The delusion around ill will is that it the mind of delusion the mind of ill will believes that getting rid of that thing is what will make us happy. Or getting me out of away from the thing is what will make us happy. Fear also can kind of come into this category. You know, fear may be the sense of, I don't like that thing, I need to get away from it. So again, the main instruction, one of the main ways to work with ill will is to see if you can take your attention out of the thing that you are averse to, and put the attention on the aversion itself, on the ill will itself. Very helpful, again, both for sense desire and ill will, to recognize how this mind state impacts the body. There are often a lot of thoughts, both with sense desire and ill will. The thoughts with sense desire, those thoughts may be along the lines of, oh, how can I get that thing? I'm going to be so happy. It's going to be so great. It's going to be so great if I get that thing. 
with ill will. It may be along the lines of, if I get rid of this thing, or how can I fix this? How can I change this? How can I control it? I can't be happy unless I figure this out. That those kinds of thoughts tend to be running when we are in caught in the throes of sense desire or ill will. And the thoughts themselves actually are kind of like the fuel for those states of mind. That if those thoughts are running and we're not really aware of those thoughts as simply thoughts, it's like we've got our foot on the gas pedal and we are fueling the belief in those thoughts and in that state of mind. And so as we begin to explore sense desire and ill will, one of the most helpful things is to, as you turn towards the sense desire, the ill will itself, see if you can let go of the thoughts, the story that's associated with it. Take your attention away from the thing that is is the kind of trigger. And see if you can come into the experience of the ill will or the sense desire itself. Largely, it can be helpful to look at this in the body. Ill will in the body can often have contracted feelings in the throat, tension around the the heart, um, heat, pressure in the case of anger. It's a lot of bodily sensations that accompany ill will, anger, rage, irritation. And so get familiar with those. If we are attending to the physical sensations uh, associated with the emotion, if we're attending to the physical sensations associated with the ill will, we are in the present moment. We are mindful in the present moment. More likely there can be some level of balance of wise mindfulness with the experience as opposed to being caught by the beliefs, the stories of the ill will. So turning to the body. As we explore that, as we put our attention in the body and take our attention out of the fuel of the thoughts, we begin to see things shift and change. We may experience some, again, we may begin to experience some relief or release around these states of mind. Uh, Ill will can be a little bit, um, in some ways, uh, at least for me, it feels like bringing attention to aversive states of mind. There's almost like a little relief that happens as I put my attention in the... uh, the aversion, because the aversive states, they tend to be, they tend to be really unpleasant. In the sense desire states, our minds can be caught in the fantasy or the, the, the thought that, oh, that's going to be so great. And so it's like our mind is deluding us into thinking that we're happy or feeling good when this uh, sense desire is going on. And it's like we're so confused that we don't even notice the unpleasantness of the sense desire. With aversion, with ill will, it's pretty obvious. It doesn't feel good, usually. It doesn't feel good. And so putting our attention on the sense, the, the ill will itself, sometimes we can recognize, oh, there's, oh, 
That's what's happening right now. Anger's happening right now. And there can be just a little bit of space around the experience. We don't feel quite so caught up or revved up in the ill will. And so right in the very turning towards it with mindfulness, there can be a little bit of release, relief. A little bit of that wisdom can begin to operate. With ill will, with aversion, with anger, with these states can often get very strong. It's like a if it's if they're not seen, they can very quickly kind of spiral out of control. Anger, you know, dislike can quickly turn to irritation, can quickly turn to anger, can quickly turn to hatred or rage. So it can like quicken mushroom really quickly. And sometimes it gets so strong so quickly that there can be overwhelm. That's very, it can be difficult to bring mindfulness to it. Or if we try to bring mindfulness to it, we find ourselves hooked. It's like we, we turn towards that, okay, I'm gonna try to be present for this anger and then boom, we're right back in the story. Nearly impossible to let go of the story. I found this happening uh, for myself around anger at one stretch of time. Um, A particular person that I was angry with, whenever they came up in my mind, I would get so angry. And I tried being mindful of it, but I discovered pretty quickly that when I tried being mindful of it, that almost immediately I was back in the story. And so the intention to be mindful, the mindfulness was not like strong enough, not quite strong enough to meet the power of that, basically rage, wasn't strong enough. And so as I began to see that turning my attention to it with mindfulness wasn't so helpful, I began choosing to put my attention elsewhere. For some reason, this often happened while I was walking. The mind would be, you know, just drifting and it would land on a thought of this person and it would spin into rage. And so what I would do when I was walking was just put my attention on something neutral, which happened to be my feet on the ground. So just noticing, okay, yep, there's that anger. Yep, okay, I see you. This shift to turn away from a hindrance cannot be done with aversion itself. It can't be done with a, oh, there's that anger. I can't, I hate that anger. I can't be with it. I need to push it away. It has to be a more respectful kind of recognition and acknowledgement. And the way I did this with my anger was kind of like I bowed to it. It's like, I see you. (sighs) I see you and I see that you're asking for attention. And I can't do it right now. So I will come back to you when my mindfulness is stronger. So is that kind of respect and acknowledgement It's like, ah, not now, I see you, not now. So that whole kind of conversation in my mind got collapsed down to just the phrase, not now, not now. And I worked with that anger in that way for a long time, months, months I worked with the anger in that way. And actually that simple tool, not now, 
in that particular case was really powerful because I discovered what happened, actually what happened in that situation was that this was mostly in daily life that I was looking at this particular anger and you know, I would I would notice, you know, for the fir- at first it was happening daily. Oh, not now, okay, not now, multiple times a day even. And over time I began recognizing a little bit, another one of the tools that the Buddha points to around the hindrances, noticing when it's not there, notice the absence of the hindrances. And so I began noticing that the bouts of anger were getting further apart. You know, that was maybe every few days that I would have this and, oh, not now. And then every few weeks. And at some point, it occurred to me that I had not experienced that anger for a very long time. And in that moment, remembering, oh, gosh, that anger's not there. Of course, the person popped into my mind. And the anger still did not pop into my mind. Kind of like, whoa, where did it go? <laughs> it, was, it was startling in a way. Since that moment, that anger at that person has never returned. It disappeared when I wasn't looking. It disappeared because I was willing to meet it bow to it, and set it aside without aversion. Slowly over time, the pattern got deconditioned. And so that tool also can be very powerful. A simple recognition, acknowledgement, and then turning to the breath, or feet on the ground, or hearing. This is... when we cannot meet our difficult mind states directly, wisdom can also grow in the simple recognizing and setting aside. Then there's sloth and torpor, sleepiness, low energy, thick mind, dull mind. Often the mind is agitated around this particular hindrance because there are beliefs operating, in particular in meditation. If sleepiness arises in meditation, low energy, thick mind arises in meditation, we often have the belief I can't meditate while this is happening. It's not possible to meditate while sleepiness is happening. It's not possible to meditate while low energy is happening. I have to increase the energy. I have to become not sleepy in order to meditate. That's a belief that we have. What I'd like to suggest is that if you have enough energy to have the thought, I'm too sleepy to meditate, then you might have enough energy to be aware of the sleepiness itself, of the low energy itself. Perhaps, play with it. 
We talked a little bit this morning about working with sleepiness. One of the um, confusions, I think, in the mind or one of the, the beliefs is that we are supposed to be able to, around meditation, we're supposed to be able to see things clearly. And when the mind is sleepy, as was pointed out this morning, it's like, you know, things are very, it's hard to kind of touch what the experience is. And so from the standpoint of being able to clearly recognize and clearly connect with this sensation and that sound, that may not be available when you're sleepy. I sometimes use the analogy with mindfulness of it being like a mirror. It reflects. It reflects whatever's there. It reflects beautiful things. It reflects unpleasant things, ugly things. The reflecting power of the mirror is not changed by what it reflects. Then think about that mirror in the bathroom after a shower, when the mirror is coated with steam, you might see, be able to see a kind of hazy outline of yourself, maybe. We might think perhaps I need to clear the mirror. The mirror is not doing its job. I need to wipe it off so that I can see myself so the mirror can do its job. But the mirror is actually doing its job perfectly. It is reflecting every drop of water on the mirror. It's just not doing the job we want it to do. And very much when the mind is sleepy, that's what's going on. There's a state of mind, foggy, dull, low energy, droopy, drifty, dreamy. And the mind is is not perhaps able to choose, oh, I want to look at that thing, or I want to observe this or investigate that. But perhaps, and what I've seen in my own, own experience, is that if, if, if I align myself in the moment with what's actually happening in the mind and get interested in what's most obvious in the mind, which is that state itself, there's often enough energy to, to know something about it. And again, it's not like a precise thing. The state of sleepiness, of low energy, it's not something we say, this is where it is, this is the experience of it. It's a broad state of mind. And we can get familiar with that. I've had a lot of practice with this. On, oh, it was a couple of years that pretty much every time I went to retreat, the mind was very dull, very sleepy, very low energy. And again, it, it, it was like surrender. I, this is what's happening. I learned so much from that time. So much about over-efforting. Sometimes I think, especially as the retreat goes on, dull mind, sleepy mind, exhausted mind, sometimes results because we've been trying too hard. And so sometimes it's a pointer to a way to pay attention 
with a little less energy, can you meet the state of low energy? Actually, I found using that phrase instead of dullness, I was doing walking meditation out here on one retreat and in this one, this period, this two-year period, and um, was noting dullness of mind. And it's like, ugh, dull, dull, dull. And at some point, I recognized that even the, the noticing of it as dullness had a little bit of a spin to it. It was a little bit judgmental. Dullness is bad. Dullness is not. I mean, I could be kind of aware of it, but there was just this belief that dullness was not a good state. And then when I shifted it, I kind of recognized, well, what's actually happening here is there's, the energy is low. I'm like, okay, low energy is happening. That had a more neutral feeling to it. And then as I explored low energy, in the dull state, my mind was going, God, I cannot pay attention to hearing. I can't notice the sensations. But then as I, I began to recognize, oh, this is actually low energy, and I just kind of turned to the feeling of low energy through the body and the mind, I recognized, wow, hearing's already happening. I don't have to do that. I'm already experiencing body sensations. I don't have to do that either. And so the uh, practice helped me to see actually that there'd been a little bit of over-efforting, trying to see experience that was actually really already available. We often believe that our minds need to be in a certain state in order to meditate. And this state of mind around low energy, thick mind, dull mind, sleepy mind, these tend to be states that we believe we cannot meditate or we cannot be aware in. Spacing out, for instance. You know, spacing out, we might think is inherently non-mindful. Isn't it the very definition of spacing out? Wouldn't that mean that you're not mindful? That's what I would think, you know, that's what I thought. Until I began getting curious and let go of the idea, oh, spacing out means I'm not mindful, but began to be curious. I was having breakfast one morning and noticing this, that, that the mind was spacing out. And in that at that period, it was like, okay, spacing out. Okay, come back to breakfast. To me, that's what being mindful meant, being mindful of eating, the physical sensations, etc. And so I was turning my attention back to the physical sensations of eating, and the mind would space out again. Okay, come back. So it was kind of this come back, come back approach. But at some point in that eating breakfast, I began to see, while I was paying attention to breakfast, there was this pull kind of a feeling of the mind like wanting to let go of paying attention so hard. And as I noticed that, it's kind of like, wow, I can see that. Why don't I just see where the mind wants to go? Instead of trying to hold my attention on the physical sensations of eating, I, I like watched the mind kind of go into this very pleasant, vibrating, energetic space. I could be completely mindful of it, 
I was right there for it. It was very restful. And in about 30 seconds, it cleared. And then I was just very present with my food, my body. And in that coming back after it cleared, I understood the mind had been tired, exhausted. It wanted a rest. And it was taking its rest, whether I wanted it to or not, but I could be there for it while it took its rest. It got its rest, and then it was available again. It was available, I was available to be with it while it was spacing out. And so if there's ever a state of mind that you think it's not possible to be mindful while X is happening, don't believe that thought. Play with it. Explore. How might it be possible? Maybe you could turn the question around. How might it be possible to be mindful while X is happening? Over and over again, I've seen it is possible more than we can fathom. Another piece about the sleepiness that I just want to drop in uh, is that so often we resist sleepiness, dullness, low energy, and often the very resisting of it creates an unpleasant experience. Have you noticed that, that when you're meditating and you're sleepy, that the experience is so unpleasant if you're resisting it? The resistance itself is what creates the unpleasantness. And what I've discovered is that when that resistance goes, if I'm willing to just observe it, observe the sleepiness, watch, not not worry if I'm going to drop, but just notice the sensations. Oh, the feeling of the body getting heavy, the feeling of the relaxation of the body. It's really pleasant. It feels really good. I spent one sitting at Yucca Valley in California where I just had so much sleepiness, but I let that sleepiness happen and be completely mindful of it. And then it would happen that I would drop, but I was sitting, I dropped, that woke me up. And I just sat up and did it all over again. In that course of that 40 minutes, I never got past the sleepiness, but I was mindful for almost the entire thing, for the exceptions of very brief times when I, I dropped. So if you can let go of the resistance to sleepiness, there's a carrot waiting. <laughs> it feels really good. <laughs> See if you can be present for it. Then restlessness and anxiety. This is, um, you know, the restlessness has both physical and mental aspects to it. Restlessness in the body is often very physically unpleasant. Feels sometimes like jumping beans under the skin, like you just cannot sit still. Uh, Restlessness in the mind is often like whirling mind, a lot of thoughts. What I found most helpful with restlessness, especially the physical side, is, well, both actually, let the attention get broad. With physical restlessness, if you're trying to kind of 
hold the energy in the body or come in and be very precise about noticing all the various sensations of the restlessness. It's kind of like putting a pre- yourself in a pressure cooker. It's like all of that restless energy is trying to be contained in this tiny little space. And if you have the sense of let your awareness get as big as the room, let the restless energy get as big as the room, it creates more space for it. This has been the most helpful instruction for me around physical restlessness. Around restless mind, when the mind is just spinning and spinning, often there is some kind of uh, emotion connected to it. Maybe some kind of worry or anxiety. And so again, seeing if you can let go of the thoughts and come into the energetic experience of how that restlessness is manifesting. It may feel like you know bees buzzing in the head or whirling energy in the body or kind of a, a, a feeling like, at one point I felt like there was a, a pinball kind of rolling around in my mind in my head, just this this energy, this swirling energy. If you can connect to the energetic experience and let go of the thoughts, again, um, the thoughts keep the state of mind stirred up. And when we let go of the thoughts and connect with the energy, it's like all of these states, they have their life. A lot of these um, um, sense desire, ill will, Uh, restlessness, if we can open to them with mindfulness and not put the foot on the gas pedal with the thoughts, they have a life. They, They may last for a certain period of time, but if we're not fueling them, they will eventually dissipate. It's kind of like a car is going, you know, 100 miles an hour down the freeway and uh, the foot on the gas pedal, you know, the, the emotion or the, the sense desire, the ill will, the restlessness is like the car hurtling down the road and the thoughts associated with it are like our foot on the gas pedal. If we take our foot off the gas pedal in a car and put the car into neutral, which is a good analogy for mindfulness, like it puts our minds into neutral, But with that analogy with the car, if you put the car into neutral and you're going 100 miles an hour down the freeway, the car doesn't stop immediately. It has a momentum. But it will stop because you're no longer fueling it. You know it will stop. You perhaps hopefully can steer while the car's hurtling down the the road as it's slowing down. And that's what we aim to do with our mindfulness. We aim to put our minds into a space that's more neutral, able to let these states flow through, live their life, and begin to dissipate. And in the process of that, we learn something about the conditions that create the state of mind, about the experience of that state of mind, we learn about the dukkha. A lot of we learn about the dukkha. We learn about the dukkha of sense desire, of ill will. We learn about the dukkha of the restlessness. 
And so there's understanding that grows as we have the mind in neutral to allow the state to begin to dissipate. With the um, restlessness, we also need to learn when to when to not engage with it directly. Again, if we try to turn towards any of these states with mindfulness and we find that they're strengthening or that aversion is growing as we try to turn to these states with mindfulness, as we do that, we may need to change the channel, put our attention on something else. With restlessness, it can be helpful, go out, take a walk, be in nature, look at, look at trees. I've, I found looking at trees to be a really helpful way to work with restlessness. So open the eyes. See if you can, again, let the container get big. Then there's doubt. And I have only a couple of minutes here. Kamala talked so beautifully the other night about faith. And faith is the flip side of doubt, or doubt is really the flip side of faith. So much of what she talked about with respect to faith is kind of like what supports us to release doubt. There's doubt in the same things that we have faith in. We we have doubt in ourselves, in the teachings, in the practice. I think with doubt, when doubt arises, one of the key things is that we need to learn to recognize it's happening. Because when we're caught in doubt, our mind is so far from mindfulness. And so if we can begin to recognize the stories that doubt tells, we have the possibility to turn towards doubt. Doubt cannot last long. Doubt doesn't last long when we turn to it with mindfulness. It really doesn't have a lot of traction when we, we can meet it with mindfulness. And so beginning to recognize the thoughts of doubt. For me, what I discovered most um, indicative of doubt was thoughts about the practice. Usually thoughts about the practice that it doesn't work, I can't do it, or um, the teachers don't know what they're talking about. If there's thoughts in your mind like that, see if you can recognize doubt is happening. If you're having thoughts about the practice in that way, just play with, okay, maybe doubt's here. Maybe this is doubt. Maybe I could notice this is doubt. Again, there's often an underlying feeling when I would turn towards doubt, when I recognized, oh, this is doubt, I would ask myself, what's here? What else is here? What does doubt feel like? It, it had different flavors and often was connected to some other kind of emotion. Vulnerability. A feeling of inadequacy. A feeling of failure. A fear of the unknown. And so as I opened, it's like, oh, actually at one point I remember, what does doubt feel like? It felt like grief. And as I opened to that feeling, It's like, oh, I can be with this. 
So learning to recognize the stories of doubt is probably the most powerful tool we have. Because doubt is almost always manifesting as thoughts in our mind. And so the piece I most want to leave you with is hopefully some sense of interest in the exploration of these states that can sometimes be so difficult. There's a lot of power that comes from willing to have the courage to meet our challenging states of mind. It took a lot of courage for me to meet that self-hatred over and over again. And there were times when I had to set it aside. But the power of mindfulness, of wise mindfulness to begin to transform these difficult energies, not that we do this transformation, but that the understanding, the learning, the the wisdom that develops as we meet these difficult states has the power to deeply transform us. Sometimes Joseph says, we want insight into suffering without experiencing suffering. These states are often experienced as suffering and we have to meet suffering. Insight into suffering happens through connection, contact with it. So open to them. Be curious about them. Get to know them, understand them. So let's just sit for a moment. We have about half an hour for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.